This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we've got a special guest on the podcast. His name is Michael Franzese. So he's a former mobster who was a capo for the Colombo crime family, which is one of the five mafia families of New York, and the son of a Colombo underboss, Sonny Franzese. And at his peak, he claims that he and his crew were generating upwards of $8 million per week from various schemes that he was running. Back in 1986, at the age of 35, Fortune Magazine actually named him the number 18 most wealthy and powerful mafia boss. And so he had the makings of kind of that next super famous, super wealthy, super powerful mob boss. But God had other plans for Michael. So Michael became a Christian. And after a stint, his second stint in federal prison, he very publicly and not really his fault declared that he was leaving the mafia and he was leaving it for good. And for those of you that don't know or don't really understand this, you can't just get out of the mafia, okay? You can't just leave and keep your life. It's a blood in and blood out kind of a deal. But that's exactly what Michael did. He left the mob. He relocated to California where he's now a speaker and a writer. And by God's providence, he's still alive today. And we talk about that a lot in this podcast. He's authored seven books to include Quitting the Mob. This one that I just finished yesterday called Blood Covenant. It is fantastic. And then his latest book that he wrote last year and released, Mafia Democracy and Guys, in this podcast, we we literally went everywhere because I mean this this guy's got a big you know social media following. He's got over a million subscribers on YouTube. But we just started with like you know what was it like growing up, Michael Franzese? I mean, your dad was an enforcer, an underboss with the Colombo crime family. Like, did you know that your dad was in the mafia? Like, you know, because for all of us, like when you're growing up, even if your dad's in the home, you don't necessarily know what they do day in and day out. But what was it like growing up? When did he kind of get drawn to that life? But then we we kind of dispelled some rumors about you know the mafia and some of those different things. Things, but we looked at, you know, how does someone get picked for the mob? How are they initiated? You know, what is a made guy? Like all these things that we think we know because we've watched a few movies or something like that. You know, we, we kind of dispelled some common misconceptions, but then it was like, Hey, he wasn't supposed to go into the mob, but he did. Like, how did that work out? We went through his actual initiation, which is like, okay, behind closed doors, this is exactly what you do to be initiated into the mob. He took us through that entire ceremony. And we looked at that. We looked at how that kind of changed his relationship with his father. Cause his father was obviously dedicated to the life. Now he's a part of that life. You know, his reputation as an earner, again, he ended up leading a crew that was making $8 million a week. And he kind of went into some detail as to some of the schemes that they ran. But then we, we looked at when that transition happened. Because, well, well, he also went into a story about a time whenever he was being marched into a room that he didn't think he was going to come out of. So that's a fantastic story that you got to stick around for, uh, for. But when he, when did he decide he was leaving the mob? Like what preceded that? Because, you know, it seemed like, you know, you're making so much money, you have so much pull and you have all these things going for you. Like, why would you want to leave that life? And again, we get into his Christian conversion. Like, why did he convert, uh, you know, or he was Catholic growing up, but even him, he's like, you know, when you're Catholic, you don't really read the Bible, you read the catechism, but he had no actual faith. But when did he put his faith in Jesus? What did that look like? And it really, it became, it became a thing in his life that when he thought he was at his worst place possible, like in solitary confinement for days on end in a federal prison, that is where God was most present to him. And then we talk a little bit about mafia democracy and kind of how he feels like we've had some degradation here in our culture. But guys, if you stick around all the way to the very, very end of the interview, I'm not going to trick you. Okay. The very last question I asked him is what is the most accurate and best mob movie there is because everyone's got their favorite and everyone's got the one that they're like, Oh, that's gotta be true. But he gives you some really, really good insights into how exact or like, what are those films? That's like, no, they nailed it. They took some liberties, but those are the ones that they nailed guys. I had a great conversation with him. We had a great conversation after, hopefully we're going to be able to do more stuff like this with him in the future, but I'm not going to keep him from you any longer. So without further ado, let's get into it. Michael Franzese, welcome to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Good to be here, Kyle. So we got a lot of ground to cover today and we don't have all the time in the world, but we, we do need to start small, I guess. So what was it like growing up, Michael Franzese? Well, it was different. That's for sure. When you, mm. you have a father that's uh, the underboss of the Colombo family and extremely high profile, always a, a major target of uh, law enforcement, uh, big media attention all the time. So I grew up you know, in that environment and it was uh, certainly different. And so I guess for you, Michael, at what point in your childhood did you begin to really understand 
the line of work that your father, Sonny Franzese, was in, because obviously he's a very famous name now, and he passed away a couple of years ago, so my condolences to you for that. He passed away at the age of, I think it was 103. But, you know, for a kid, it's you never really know exactly what your dad does, right, you know, regardless of what they do. So when did that kind of come to fruition for you? Well, I can tell you, you know, my <clears throat> my eyes were opened early. I remember, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing how you remember certain things that really stand out in your life. I was about four or five years old, and uh, it was during the Colombo War, the actual Profaci Gala War, I should say, in the Colombo family. And my dad was away for a couple of days. He hadn't come home. And we were at my grandmother's house in Long Island. He had moved us out there, I guess, for our own safety at that time. And uh, he suddenly appeared one morning. He wasn't shaven at all. He walked in the door. I remember uh, his close friend, a soldier of his, was out on the uh, porch of the house, kind of standing guard. And he came in and embraced my mother, came over to me, hugged me tight. He was only there for maybe 15, 20 minutes, and then he was gone. So, you know, I, I didn't know what to think at that point. Obviously, I was young. But that kind of started out, you know, my understanding that dad was into something different. And uh, he never discussed it in the house, uh, but it was all around us. So you couldn't miss him. Mm. So it was like you were marinated in it. So it was just like, you know, it was just old hat, just like, you know, my dad, you know, worked uh, 40 plus years in a factory and like came home dirty from hard days of, of good, honest work. And so that was just it. We were just surrounded in it um, to take a little bit of a divergence. So obviously your, your father worked for the Colombo family. That's one of the five La Cosa Nostra crime families, Colombo, Gambino, Genovese, uh, Bonanno and Lucchese. But then, you know, people will say La Cosa Nostra, or they'll say the five families or they'll say the mob or the mafia. Are there any differences between any of these things or are those all kind of like terms that can be used interchangeably? Yeah, pretty much here in the United States, they use them interchangeably. I mean, uh, the real name is Cosa Nostra, this thing of ours. It obviously originated from uh, the Sicilians in Italy, uh, mafia, same thing. But, you know, in, in the United States, it's, it's known as Cosa Nostra. Well, so for you, Michael, I appreciate you breaking that down for us. Um, obviously, we'll get into your story about how you kind of got into that life. But there there are obviously a lot of misperceptions. Hollywood has a lot to do with that, just entertainment in general and in and, and books and things like that. But how does somebody get picked to be in the mob or the mafia? How are they initiated? How are they, you know, what is a made guy? And I guess maybe you can dispel a few of the common misperceptions about that along the way. Well, yeah, you don't really get picked. I mean, you can't yeah. just go up to somebody and say, hey, I'd like to join. Somebody that knows you has to propose you. That's the term. Say you have what it takes. You know, you, you, you know, you're qualified to be a member of that life. And once that happens, you go through a, a recruit period like I did for about two plus years uh, where you have to do anything and everything you're told to do to prove yourself. When I first met with the boss uh, after my dad proposed me, he said, uh, I hear you want to become a member of our life. Is that true? I said, yes. He said, well, here's the deal. From now on, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you're on call to serve this family, the Colombo family. That means if your mother is sick and dying and you're at her bedside, we call you to service. You leave your mother, you come and serve us. From now on, we're number one in your life before anything and everything. When and if we feel you deserve this privilege, this honor to become a member, we'll let you know. And that's it. And then you're you're in a recruit period uh, for as long as they feel you need to be in it. And, you know, the, the interesting thing, when I was proposed in the uh, early 70s, they had an expression among all five families that the books were closed. They weren't bringing any new guys in. It was more for security right. reasons. Unless somebody died in a family, you were allowed to replace them. But other than that, we couldn't uh, we couldn't bring anybody in. The books were closed. But they opened up in the uh, early to mid 70s. And I was waiting around. I mean, I was a recruit with guys that were waiting 20 years to become wow. members. So it was an interesting time. And uh, they brought a lot of guys in in the mid to late 70s. And so when you become a made man, as it were, in terms of on the, on the street level or just in general, like what exactly does that mean? I mean, that's kind of like common American parlance now, like, oh, that's a made guy. But what does that tangibly mean to you guys? Well, it means you've taken the oath. Uh, you know, you were officially indoctrinated into the life and it's a status. I mean, you come in as a soldier and at that point in time, you're on a different level than everybody else on the street. You know, made guys are told this. Um, we're special. We're in a different breed. And anybody that's not a made guy, it's a sucker. 
You could be the president of the United States. You could be the Pope. You can be uh, the richest guy in the world. You're a sucker if you're not made and you haven't gone through that uh, ritual and become a, you know, a, a made member. So uh, it's a status that's, uh, you know, quite honestly, the night I was made, it was exhilarating to me after being a recruit for, uh, you know, th- that period of time. So uh, it's a good feeling when you first get in. So, Michael, that that's interesting, but you know that that was never the plan for you. The plan was never to enter the mob life. I mean, as my understanding, reading through your book Blood Covenant, which is fantastic, by the way, you were going to go pre med, but that maybe didn't last that long. That was maybe attached to the fact that you were trying to get some money to try to help get your father out of prison because he was on a prison sentence that y'all felt like he he didn't deserve to be serving and all that. But I guess what sucked you into the life. Well, it was, uh, you know, my dad got a 50-year prison sentence for a crime he swore he didn't commit. He was innocent of. I believed him. And, you know, uh, I lost interest in school because I became very close with Joe Colombo and who had the Italian-American Civil Rights League at that time, was a vehicle I thought that would help my father, you know, overturn that conviction. And uh, so I lost interest in school. My dad originally didn't want this life for me. He wanted me to be a doctor, you know, the first professional in the family. But uh, after the, he, he got that sentence in 1970, I was trying to help him get out of prison. And we once had a meeting in Leavenworth Penitentiary when he was in. And I told him, Dad, I'm not going to school. If I don't help you out, you're going to die in here. Mm-hmm. And we kind of argued a little bit because, you know, he didn't want me to, to, uh, to leave school. But he knew my mind was made up. And he said to me, son, if you're going to be on the street, I want you on the street the right way. In his mind, the right way was to become a member of his life. So he proposed me for membership at that point. It wasn't that I said, hey, I got to become a a member of the mob. I just Mm -hmm. if he saw that as a way to help him, you know, to get the money that we needed, maybe the political connections that we needed, maybe the the legal help that we needed. Well, fine, dad, I'm ready to go, because if I don't do that, you're going to die in here. And so you, you were on that path. And then, as you mentioned earlier, Michael, you were formally inducted into the Colombo crime family on Halloween night of 1975. Now, this has been depicted in just about everything you could see in Hollywood and television shows and movies and things like that. But take us through what that was like for you, because I, I'm sure you had a sense of what was going to happen. But of course, you had never experienced it yourself. So please kind of take our audience through exactly what that process was like. Sure. Well, because it's a secret ceremony, you're never told in advance when it's going to happen. I mean, it mm. could happen any time. Uh, like I said, there was guys waiting 20 years. So I didn't know when, when the call would come. But it did come, you know, uh, Halloween morning, I was called uh, by my cop regime at that time, my captain. And he said, uh, just meet me in Brooklyn, which is not abnormal. I, I did that, mm. you know, five, six times a week. So I went in, I, I had a suit on, and we kind of just you know, did our normal stuff for the day. And then that evening he had me drive him to a, uh, a catering hall that was owned by Joe Colombo's son, Anthony Colombo. And that was the night I had a feeling. I said, something's happening here tonight. And it was the night that myself and five other gentlemen uh, took the oath. And we walked into a room individually. Uh, the boss was seated at the head of like a horseshoe config- configuration, underbossed and consigliere to his left and right. All the captains were alongside of them. Walked down the aisle, stood in front of the boss, held out my hand. He took a knife, uh, cut my finger. Some blood dropped on the floor. This is a blood oath. Cupped my hands. He took a picture of a saint, Catholic altar card, put it on my hands. Uh, didn't per- He lit it a flame. It didn't hurt. It burned quickly. It was merely symbolic. And he said, tonight, Michael Francis, you are born again into a new life, into Cosa Nostra. Violate what you know about this life. Betray your brothers, and you'll die and burn in hell like the saint is burning in your hands. Do you accept Yes, I do. And that was it. It was a very exhilarating night. You know, I had, I had waited for a couple of years for this to happen. And, uh, you know, I was uh, I was very excited about uh, finally becoming a member. Well, and there's a quote from your book, Blood Covenant, after the initiation, I'll read it here. Yet as I was leaving the dimly lit room that night, I found that I was excited. This feeling grew until it became exhilaration. I was now part of an army of blood brothers. I was locked into a brotherhood few would ever experience or even understand. And more importantly, I had become one with my father. I had bonded. I could never be rejected now, never be banished from the house. That's all that really mattered. My father had accepted me as blood. Blood spilled in drops on the wooden floor, but blood nonetheless. It was a joyous moment for me. 
Now, for anyone that knows your story, there's so much packed in that. Like I drew a big highlight around that and I wrote in the, in the side of the margins of the book, there's so much here because Sonny Franzese was not your biological father, but he's the only father that you ever really knew. But there was that angst when you were a child growing up, Michael, that you were you were never fully accepted. You were, you were maybe you know one bad day or one bad thing away from being rejected. But in this moment, you became one with your father. I mean, take us through a little bit of that because a lot of people in this audience, maybe they they have a distant father and never met their father. And just the the feeling of exhilaration to be bonded to your father is something that they would they would literally die for. But you found it that night. Well, yeah, I mean, I love my father. I idolized him. He was a great dad to me. I didn't know any other father, even though I grew up believing that he was uh, my adopted father or he had mm. adopted me. Um, and the reason for, you know, this exhilaration that night is because when he married my mom, you know, my mom was 16 when I was born and my father was uh, married before and he had three other children. So those three other children became part of the household. And my mom, quite honestly, you know, had a rough time with them because she was like 19, 20 years old and she's got three kids, you know, I don't want to say pushed upon her, but you understand entering the household yeah. and right. she was a young woman herself. So she didn't get along great with the kids all the time. And I always had the fear that maybe my father would turn against me because the way my mother treated them. It never happened. He never did. And my mother always used to tell me, you don't ever have to worry about that. Um, but still in my head, I did. So, yeah, when I when I became a, a member, I said, hey, now I'm joined in blood with my father. This is full acceptance. And it was exhilarating to me. And I think, you know, as you read the end of the book, my mother revealed later on in life that, you know, he was really my father biologically. But at the time of their marriage or when right. he made my mother pregnant, uh, she couldn't reveal that because she mm -hmm. didn't do that back in those days. And my father wasn't allowed to get a divorce originally because Cousin Ostra didn't allow it until his first wife kind of took off, ran away, and he had the three kids and then they allowed it. So it was, it was a whole kind of messed up situation. But yeah. I mean, I was exhilarated because, hey, now it's it's for real. I'm bonded with my dad in blood, and it meant the world to me that night. Well, and that's one of the most interesting things about your life, Michael, which obviously you've led a very unique, interesting life, is all of the ins and outs of that relationship with your father, finding out that it's your actual biological father, but running into a man that you thought was your biological father as you were growing up and kind of what was looking like that there. But one of my favorite stories that you described uh, in your book is, you know, your your father used to wake you up at 6 a.m. to say, hey, go and make me coffee. And then you would sit there and you chat and you would get so excited for these 6 a.m. wake ups that you'd be up, you know, a quarter to six, like ready for your father to come in and say, hey, let's go, let's make coffee. But then when you became a you know certified member, whenever you became a made man, whenever you were in the mafia, you were doing those 6 a.m.s again with your dad, but it was just very different. You know, you're talking about business and life and all these other different things. But the, the interesting thing about you, and again, this goes against, you know, cuts against kind of the Hollywood narrative, you had a reputation as an earner and not a killer. And so, but for us on, on the outside, we don't see those two things as possibly being able to be separated. That if you are a, a made guy and if you are a famous mobster, you're obviously a killer as well. But I guess talk to me about that because, you know, you were seen as a comer, a guy that was going to really get after it, but it seemed like you were way more focused on money than, you know, flexing and, and, and taking life. Yeah. You know, in that life, you have like two separate, you know, uh, identities, I would say. You're either a racketeer or you're a gangster. Now, a gangster, I'll try to explain it. A gangster, for some reason, hasn't grasped the understanding of how to use that life to make money. Hmm. A racketeer has. They understood. Like, I understood how to use that life to benefit me in business. And as a result, I used it effectively and went on to make a significant amount of money. And remember this, Kyle, no organization exists unless it's financed properly. Right. When you're an earner, they try to steer you in that direction so that you continue to bring money into that life. Now, sure. let me be clear. A racketeer also has to have a gangster in him because when you're called upon to do something, you got to do it, period. And if it's an act of violence, you got to do it. You don't ever refuse. You're never shielded from that 100%. Your time is going to come and you're going to have to act accordingly. But when you're a gangster, you're not called upon to be a racketeer because that's something you just you have to learn. You have to know how to use. So 
a lot of times, a lot of the work, they call it, a lot of the work on the street would be the gangsters because they got to they got to be effective in the life at some point. So that's what they use for. Um, and that's that's kind of the way it goes. And, you know, it's like any other organization. You, you separate the people that have an expertise in a certain area and you use them for that. And so I was more of a racketeer uh, because I, I knew how to use the life effectively effectively to bring in money. And that was very, very important to uh, to my boss and to the family. So the interesting thing about your description of that is obviously there are people that are the muscle. Maybe they don't potentially have the brains to, to come up with these schemes. But you came up with or you and, and your, your crew came up with a scheme that was astounding in how well it worked. And it was kind of a, a gas tax scheme, you know, where you were skimming gas taxes. And at one point, yeah, I guess the estimations were between five and eight million dollars a week was coming into the family through your crew. Obviously, it was a very complicated scheme, but can you give us just the high points of it to kind of describe like, hey, at your absolute peak, this was the thing that you were doing that was bringing in the most money? Sure. Yeah, it was a, a basically a scheme to defraud the government out of tax on every gallon of gasoline. And, you know, a lot of people think that mob guys sit around in their social clubs and devise all of these schemes, how to defraud companies and all of that. Uh, it happens on occasion. But most of the time, somebody from within the company thinks of a scheme to defraud the company and they come to us. Hey, we can protect them. We can finance them. We're never going to tell on them. We have the authority, the power, the connections. So in this case, same thing. Guy comes to me with the germ of an idea. He was in the gasoline business and how to defraud the government. And uh, for eight years, I took that to, uh, I think, a peak level where we were pulling down five to eight million a week. I had over 300 gas stations we either owned or operated. I had 18 companies that were licensed to collect the tax on every gallon of gasoline. I drew the Russian mob guys from uh, Brighton Beach, Brooklyn, in with me. And we ran a very effective operation for seven or eight years until uh, my partner, the original guy that came to me, became an informant. He got in trouble in, in some other matter. And uh, that's when he blew the whistle on everything. But uh, we had a good run. Yeah. And that led to uh, a lot of things in your life. And really kind of that was one of the first dominoes to fall that led you to Christ. And we'll certainly get to that as well. But as you're in this life, you obviously know that you're you're really walking a razor's edge at all moments. You're, you're constantly on thin ice because, you know, the family has the power of life and death over you and your crew and essentially everyone there. So I'm going to read this this quote here from Blood Covenant, and then we'll see what happened before that. The wine tasted sharp and bitter. My body had been on such a razor's edge that it had altered my internal chemistry. My brothers walked around the room and chatted with me and talked among themselves, but I couldn't concentrate on their words. They were trying to act like everything was back to normal, but it wasn't. Just moments before, they had been about to sentence me to death. I would never forget it, even though I had done the same thing if I had been in their position. It was the way things worked in this life. It would never be the same for me, not with this family, or my own. So obviously there was a pretty kind of cornerstone moment for you that happened right before that. So take us through what happened to kind of lead you to that state of mind. Well, yeah, one of the horrors of that life, Kyle, is that you make a mistake, serious mistake. Uh, your best friend walks you into a room and you don't walk out again. Mm -hmm. And obviously in my 20 plus years in that life, uh, you know, I was aware of that situation with others. And um, I got that call one night. Uh, I won't go into all the details about it, but um, I literally thought I was being walked into a room that I wouldn't walk out of again. And uh, I was scared. I mean, there's no question about it. You know, my heart was beating out of my chest. Um, I was I, was, I don't know how I didn't faint when the door opened up to where the, the room that I was entering. But um you know, and I, it was unjust as far as I was concerned. Um, I, we did walk out of the room. Obviously, we cleared everything up. But I think it was a message sent to me that, uh, you know, understand your position here because, you know, I was getting pretty powerful. I mean, I had a big crew. We were making a lot of money. Um, some of the, you know, bosses and the other families were receiving me pretty well. My father had been on parole. He still had a lot of weight in the family. So, I think, you know, the other faction of the family was getting a little bit nervous that maybe we were thinking about making a move or something like that. I don't know. But uh, it did change myself because, you know, that night I said, look, I'm bringing so much money into this family. I've been loyal. Uh, I have no idea of, of, you know, going against anybody. 
and yet I'm being treated this way. So, but I understood, you know, afterwards I understood the life and they said, okay, this is part of it. This is what I signed up for in a way. Uh, but it did change things for me. It did put me on my guard, you know, because something happened with my dad that night that was very, very tough for me to, uh, you know, to accept very tough. And it changed everything for me. And I always say this, Kyle, if that incident didn't happen that night, I don't think I would have ever walked away from the life. So in retrospect, it was a life-saving event, a life-turning event, a transforming event for me because it set the stage for what would happen later on. And so if, if you don't mind going into that a little bit more, because this seemed like another center point for you, the relationship with you and your father changed a little bit. Um, and you can obviously give as much detail or as, as little detail as you want, but your father was marched into that room before you. And one thing that's very clear as you describe it is that Sonny and you, your father and you, you thought about the family differently, right? You were both dedicated to the family, but his dedication was basically black and white. And your dedication had a lot of gradations. It had a lot of uh, different influences in that as well. So can you walk us through that a little bit as well? Yeah, my dad was called in. We were called in separately, which I didn't like. He and I had met up before because he was the one that made me aware of the meeting. And we were both captains, couple regimes at that point. So we kind of equally, equally ranked, even though I always looked at my father as, you know, my superior in that regard. Um, and we argued about going separately because I knew there was talk on the street about the money that we were making or all this kind of stuff. But he convinced me, he said, we got an order. We got to do it this way. So he was in there before me. And when I got there, he wasn't there. He had left. Uh, but the fellow that brought me there, uh, told me something when we walked out. He said, basically, your father didn't help you in there that night. He, he threw you under the bus. And it was shocking to me when I heard that because my father and I had, had never, ever split in any way. You know, we were unified in that life. And it really took a, its toll on me emotionally that night. I never said anything to him. I didn't reveal my feelings to anybody in that life. You best keep your feelings to yourself. Um, but it was life changing in that uh, if I didn't feel my father uh, had betrayed me, and he did in a way, I would have never walked away from the life later on because I wouldn't want to hurt him. I wouldn't have wanted to do that to him because I know how important the life and the oath meant to him. But that changed things. Um, so, you know, I mean, I, I guess that's the best way to describe it. Uh, it. This was just a precursor for what would happen later on, in my view. And so let's kind of go and get to that because without getting into all the details, because, you know, the story's out there, you detail it in several of your books, but obviously you went away to prison. Uh, it could have been a much, much longer sentencing, but you were able to get it to be a smaller one. But there was a story that came out in the media that you were quitting the mob. Okay. And obviously, as, as you've described before, this is a blood in blood out thing. This isn't like, you know, working at, you know, some local law firm or something like that. Like you can't just get out of the life. You can't just walk away from it. You know, too much. Uh, it's just not something that the families will, will tolerate, but talk to me about the, the word getting out and kind of what that did to you. Because the reality was, is that was your plan that you were going to get out of the mob. You were going to move from New York to California. And that was going to be that but you didn't want it to be like this big national story that it ended up being. No, I kind of got, you know, suckered into that because uh, I had taken a 10 year prison sentence. This was part of my plan. Uh, do some time in prison, pay the government some money, take a plea and wrap everything up that had been pending on me. Uh, you know, which I'll get into. I married this young girl who is now my wife of 37 years and move out to the West Coast. When I get out of prison, I'll have parole, probation. I can use that as an excuse not to meet with anybody because it's a violation when you're on parole to associate with other uh, criminals. So that was part of my plan. But while I was in prison, Life Magazine had reached out through the warden and said, hey, we're doing this big story on you. It'll be a better story if you uh, let us interview you. So as part of my plan to kind of, you know, calm things down, you know, let the government know I'm really gone. I just said, you know, there is no mafia. I married this girl. I'm out of the life and so on and so forth. And they wrote this story, quitting the mafia, like I was rejecting the life. And the FBI took it another level and put word out on the street that I was going to cooperate. Yeah. So, you know, nobody walks away from that life and especially publicly. So 
everybody thought, hey, I must be turning informant. I must be cooperating. It wasn't true. I wasn't going to put anybody in prison. I was trying to manipulate the government in a little bit to make them think that I was I was really serious about being out of the life. Because you got to understand, Kyle, I was a major target. I mean, mm-hmm. I, up to that point, from the minute I got involved, I was a target because of my name, well, my dad. So I had 18 arrests. I was indicted seven times. I had two federal racketeering cases. I went to trial five times on state and federal charges. So, I mean, I was a major target. So I'm trying to let the government know, hey, I'm really done with this, but not to the point where I was going to cooperate. So it put me in a real big mess because, you know, the feds came into the prison and said, hey, it's all over the street. You know, uh, you're a dead man. Your father has turned on you. Persico put a hit on you cooperate with us. We'll put you in a program and we'll protect your life and your families. And I said, I'm not going to do that. I don't want any program and I'm not going to hurt anybody. And it just started a whole series of events that just turned very difficult for me, very challenging. Yeah. Obviously, as you're reading through it, it's like, okay, this is, these are problems of your own making, but at the same time, it's like, you you still kind of feel bad for the situation that you were in. So this sounds like a curt question. This is a question that you've literally answered a thousand times, but perhaps my audience hasn't heard it. How is, how is it that you are alive today? Because again, the only people that we know of that got out of the life that are alive are in the witness protection program. And like, these are, these are people that tried to live quiet lives. And even, even sometimes that didn't always work out for them. And so for you, like, it's not that long a plane ride from the Northeast to the West coast. And so it's like, literally, how did, how did, were you able to walk away from a blood in blood out situation? Well, you know, Kyle, there's two answers to that. And one, obviously, is the spiritual answer. I believe God had a different plan for me, uh, for my life. That's become obvious over the last 20 years. But, you know, also, uh, the Bible tells us God never throws you into the fire without preparing you for it. So remember, I'm a student of that life. I grew up in it. I spent 20 years in it. I knew exactly what the guys would do and wouldn't do. So I said to myself, okay, They're not going to walk me into a room. They're going to have to work to get me. You know, it's one thing to walk somebody into a room and put a bullet in your head. And it's another thing to fly across country with a hit squad and go after somebody and kill them uh, when they know what's happening. So what I did, because murder, you go away for life. So here's what I did. I changed my entire lifestyle. What did I mean by that? I didn't create patterns in my life. I didn't walk my dog every morning at 7 a.m. I didn't go to the same restaurant every Tuesday night. Um, You know, I didn't go to clubs anymore. I know they're bad places for me. I'm pretty well known. Guy wants to be a hero. He makes a call back to New York. I walk out in a parking lot. I'm gone. So I was very disciplined and structured my life to know that I'm not going to make it easy for anybody. So uh, and then over a period of time, you know, people, the, the feds had put my name on the witness list of several trials, but I never showed up. Right. And then after doing five years in prison, 13 months on parole, I get violated and sent back to prison. So now everybody's saying, wait a second, this guy isn't hurting anybody. So the key mm-hmm. kind of went off. And then over a period of time, Kyle, I just outlasted everybody. Everybody I know dead or in prison for the rest of their life because, you know, you know, the racketeering laws in the mid 80s devastated, you know, all five families. So they had other things to worry about. And I I didn't become an important issue. Well, and as you mentioned earlier, Michael, you know, obviously God had a plan for your life. And that is, you know, your story, had it stopped with your first prison sentence would have been that that's enough for a movie right there. You know, being able to come up and do all these other different things. But that that also wasn't God had in store for you. I, I don't want to really tee it up any any further than that, but you had a a meeting, as it were, with the creator of the universe, and you had to reckon with whether or not this Jesus guy, this Middle Eastern Jew that lived a couple thousand years ago, whether or not he was your savior or not, and you came out and said, yes, indeed he is. So take us through that conversion, because, I mean, again, how many people do you know that went from mafia to Christian? Go. Well, after uh, I was out on parole for, I think, 13 months, and violated my parole. Basically, the government was upset with me. I refused to cooperate in a big case against a fellow by the name of John Riggie, who was the boss of the Jersey family. And shortly after that, I was violated. And the first night I was in the hole, uh, worst night of my life, because the feds had told me they were indicting me on another charge. Uh, They took all my money. They, They went to my house with a search warrant. They cleaned us out. They told my wife I'd never see my She'd never see her husband on the street again. 
And it was just a devastating night. I figured, hey, I'm done this time. You know, I'm going to spend the rest of my life in, in prison. I'm going to lose my wife. We had two little babies. I, it was just a mess. And I was, uh, uh, it was a bad night, Kyle. You know, I don't know how mm-hmm. else to put it. And it was that night that, um, you know, honestly, I wanted to lay my head on the pillow and not wake up. You know, the prospect of spending the rest of your life in a six by eight cell is pretty daunting because I knew they couldn't put me out on the yard. So I said, if this is my life, why do I want to live? And I'm laying there and uh, a prison guard walked by my cell and he looked in. He said, Francis, you okay? You don't look good. I chased him away. I said, get away from me, man. Don't bother me. And he came back about, you know, a minute or two later and pushed a Bible through the slot on the door. And I picked up that book and that was the night that I started my journey. It was the first time I really opened the Bible. As a Catholic, you don't read the Bible. You'd normally read the catechism. So I started reading the Bible that night. And to to make a very long story short, uh, the big racketeering case that they tried to put on me fell apart. They gave me four years on the violation, which was the maximum. I spent 35 months and 13 days in prison, 29 months and seven days in solitary. It was uh, just me and God in that cell for that length of time. And that's when my conversion took place. I mean, and Kyle, I want want people to understand this. You know, my conversion is based upon what I believe to be true and I believe to be evidence. I never had any... uh, vision of the Lord. He didn't come to me in a dream. Uh, I don't speak in tongues. Uh, you know, uh, he never spoke to me audibly. It was my research and my understanding because at the same time I had my wife send me in books on every other faith and Christianity just rang true to me. And over the past 20 years, it's just, it's just impacted me even more to where I may not be the best Christian out there in any way, shape or form. I don't, don't get me wrong, but my belief is solid. There's no question in my mind that uh, Jesus Christ uh, was born, lived, died for my sins, and that one day um, I'll be resurrected with him in heaven. And, and that's how I feel. So um, it just really set, it just really penetrated during that three, three months or three years, I should say, in solitary. Well, and there was a very good quote from Blood Covenant that really speaks to that. It said, prison had been good for me and I was much better man for it. I'd come through it as a much more dedicated and serious believer. This former mafia captain had really become a soldier in the army of the Lord Jesus. But I'm going to go back to something that you just said, Michael. You didn't have that road to Damascus experience. You didn't have God parting the clouds and be like, hey, I'm real. You should believe in me. It was an evidence-based approach, but we live in kind of this modern era where even modern church services, it's all about emotions. Like we're going to get you to feel as much emotion as possible during the music. We're going to, you know, manipulate you with the the chord changes and progressions and with the lights. And even when the pastor's doing the, you know, the, the altar call at the end, they start the piano and they start the dramatic music. It seems like everything is about the drama and creating these feelings when there are a lot of people that come to faith through evidence, they study the disciples, they study the first, second and third century church. They study, you know, the eyewitnesses of Jesus's resurrection. And then they find that the evidence is sufficient for them to put their faith in it. So talk to me a little bit about that, because I'm more like you that I want to see the evidence, show it to me, and then I'll make a reasonable call. But man, we live in an era where it's, it's all about the feelings. No, you're right, Kyle. And I'll tell you what got to me. I mean, I'm a new Testament guy. But what what there's a couple of things that led to my, you know, real conversion and understanding. Number one, the Old Testament is all about prophecy. And remember, prophecy is not prophecy unless it's right 100 percent of the time. And if you look at all the prophecy in the Old Testament, it's right 100 percent of the time as it's depicted in the New Testament. And in, in the New Testament, I focused on a couple of things. Number one, uh, the the disciples who under the rarest and worst of conditions, after their hero, their leader was gone, um, when they seen the resurrected Jesus, they became stalwarts again, and they were ready to die for their faith. You don't die for your faith, okay, in something you don't believe in. So I believe strongly in the resurrection because of the actions of the apostles. That's number one. And, and I can get into a lot of things. The second thing was I really focused on Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the man, because my entire life, 
I was told that I had to be a man's man. This was the standard I had to live up to. So I really broke down Jesus of Nazareth, and I found out that there was no greater man that ever walked the face of the earth in every phase of his character. So here's the deduction I came to. Here's what I said. I said, okay, if I try to emulate the greatest man that ever walked the face of the earth, okay, throughout my life, everybody in touch with me is going to benefit, and I'm going to benefit by trying to emulate him. And when I die, well, if he wasn't the savior of the world, well, I'm dead anyway. So what did I have to lose? Nothing. Right. Because throughout my life, I was as decent a person as I possibly could be. But then I believed totally in the resurrection because of the disciples and because of things that happened afterwards. So for me, believing in Jesus is a win-win situation. You can't lose no matter what. And I try to break everything down to, uh, you know, what's logical to me. And- mm-hmm. After reading the Bible and reading every other faith and understanding it, the logic turned to Jesus in a big way. And then, of course, different things that I've seen in my life. And Kyle, things that I've seen in other people's life that put my testimony to pale. I mean, the Lord is really right. work in other people's lives. And I've seen that over the past 20 years. So uh, there's no other way to go for me. No other way. Well, and so, Michael, it, it's funny that, that you describe it that way, because the next thing I want to ask you it sounds dumb to say it now that you're you're 20 years into your Christian walk, but the cynic in me at the time that you basically come out as a Christian, as it were, would have been like, yeah, 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 I bet Michael's a Christian now. He's wanting to get the feds off his case. He's wanting to, you know, get the heat to die down a little bit. And so he wants to make people at least feel bad that they killed a man of God kind of a thing. So I, and I know you've been asked that before and you've been asked that to your face. Like, Hey, is your faith actually real? But I mean, if you're running a, if you're running a game right now, you're two decades in, you're doing a great job because you've convinced a lot of people that you actually believe this, but what did, what do you say to people? And what would you say to people that are like, yeah, I, I don't really think that's true. I think you're just trying to get out of trouble. Well, Kyle, I get that every day. You know, yeah. I'm, I have a big social media platform and you know, people look, you, I, I will say this. I think, you know, the greater percentage, the overwhelming percentage of people are kind of in my corner. But you always get those cynics. I'm using religion to make money and it's just another scam. And, you know, and actually you feel bad for those people because they don't have, you know, a, a set moral compass that they really understand. Um, but look, I don't think I'm that good that I could fake this over 20 some odd years. I mean, I was released from prison in 95. I started my walk in 91. So I'm going on 32 years. Yeah. And, you know, listen, if I am if I am a fraud, well, then I'm going to pay for it in the end. Because, listen, Kyle, I pulled a lot of scams on the street. I was pretty good back then. You can't pull a scam on God. So who am I kidding in the end? You know, if there is a heaven and there is a hell, and I believe... 1000% there is, uh, you know, I'm only kidding myself if this is all fraud. Well, Michael, and it's also a question of fruit because there are plenty of wolves in sheep's clothing out there. There are plenty of people that are using God to make money, but the fruit in their life is not sweet. It is not good looking fruit, but the the fruit from your life and the people that know you and that are surrounding you. I mean, I worked directly with your daughter to get this, this interview scheduled. And so it's like, if you were just faking it, Either you've faked her in, into convincing this is all this type of thing. But like if you were this horrible guy that's still running schemes, like I, I don't know that your your daughter would be a part of them. And so that that's just an interesting thing to me. So to transition a little bit, uh, since we're running a little bit short on time, I want to talk about a book that you wrote last year in 2022. And it's this one right here, Mafia Democracy, How Our Republic Became a Mob Racket. So obviously very like intense title. Guys, this will be in the show notes so you can pick it up. The first question I guess I want to ask is the Forward is by Rudy Giuliani. Now, if you see that, you're like, oh, you know, Michael and Rudy must be friends. Guys, Rudy Giuliani was the guy that was trying to end the five families reign in New York City. That was the main guy. And here we are in 2022, and he's writing the foreword to your book. Talk to me a little bit about how that went down, because I, as soon as I saw his name on here, I was like, okay, that's pretty intense. Well, take it a step further. I was on trial. Rudy indicted me on a major case. And in the courtroom told my uh, my lawyer and me that if he convicted me, he was going to give me double what my father got, 100 years, which right. is the kind of time that, you know, all the bosses got 100 years. That's the kind of time they were given out. So I hadn't, that was my last, you know, encounter with Rudy in the courtroom 30 some odd years ago. 
Um, and then just about a year ago, uh, maybe a little bit longer than that, a mutual friend brought us together on a radio show. Uh, Rudy agreed to come on the show with me and I agreed. And we had a casual conversation, you know, just about the past and the present. And then uh, when my publisher said, do you think Rudy would write the forward? I said, oh, I don't know about that. You know, <laughs> right. but, uh, they reached out. He agreed and he wrote a forward that blew me away. And basically he said that he's been watching me for 30 years and he thinks that I'm sincere about my life as it is now. And he wrote a, a beautiful forward. I mean, I couldn't have asked for anything more. Uh, plus, he believes in the book. So um, it's, you know, it's just one of those things that, you know, God, God has a crazy way of putting people together. And uh, I, w I was very, very pleased and very blessed when he, he agreed to do that. Yeah. If you don't think God has a sense of humor, there's, there's a pretty good example that he, he really does because back in the eighties and nineties, you would have never thought that something like that would be possible, but we, we don't have time to dig into everything in the book. Perhaps we can do that at a later date, but just give us kind of the 30,000 foot overview of this book because you get into a ton of detail. That's why I'm almost embarrassed to ask you to, to just kind of bring it in briefly. But when you say like how our Republic, because we do live in a constitutional Republic guys, not a democracy, but how our Republic became a mob racket. What do you mean? Well, you know, so many people have said to me over the past couple of years that the mafia would do a better job running the country than our current administration. <laughs> and, you know, years ago, I started to write this book and then I stopped because I said, I don't want the government mad at me again. What do I need it for? My life is OK now. But then in later years, I felt the responsibility to write the book because of what I'm seeing. Our government is absolutely morphing into a mob like operation. It's all about power. It's all about control. It's all about money, you know, and I point this out very specifically. This is not a fluff piece. This is accurate. This is research. There's examples. I name people. Mm -hmm. And I and I I, I also um, challenge anybody to uh, to counter what I say in the book, because it's real. Everything is real. Everything happens. And it's a scary thing. We should not have a mob-like administration. We should not have an administration that is worried about, you know, power and control and making money. And, um, and that's what's happening. So my reason for writing the book was to make people aware, number one, and number two, to tell them, hold our public officials accountable. If they're not doing the job, if they're misrepresenting themselves, if they're, if they're feeding their own tanks and they're not being honest with us, Vote them out of office. And that's it. And let's find good people because some of them are out there. Let's find them and put them in office and get this country back on track. Well, Michael, as I'm, as I was reading through the book, like I'm a guy that pays attention. I pay attention to the news cycle. You know, I, every now and then I'll get caught watching C-SPAN and there were examples from your book that obviously that you re had to research to find them. And they were just shocking that the level of, de of depraved uh, operations that are going on at all levels of government. And then there's the ones that most of us all know about, but then you don't just leave it there because part of the problem that we have in this modern time, Michael, is we have describers and prescribers, but we have few people that will do both. They'll describe a problem, but then also prescribe, here's how we can tangibly move that around and shake it around and, and kind of change it. So guys, I definitely recommend you pick up a copy of Mafia Democracy, but we're running short on time. So we're going to end up making this the last question of the day. And I think people would like, they would, you know, try to get me whacked if I didn't ask you this, because you've talked about this before. Everyone's seen the mob movies. We've seen the mob shows. We want to know, Michael, what is the most accurate mob movie that you've seen the the number one that's like that is the closest to the real thing that i've seen the best one okay well i'd have to say there's two there's okay Fellas and donnie brasco both you know fairly accurate of course they always take some uh you know dramatic liberty uh yeah. but fairly accurate and then the most accurate now this is going to be a surprise to everyone is the 1996 Gotti movie with Armand DeSante and Anthony Quinn. Okay. Most of the script was taken right from uh, surveillance reports and wiretaps that were on the Ravenite Social Club and so on and so forth. It was brilliantly acted, brilliantly written, brilliantly directed, and very, very accurate. And I, I always recommend, I became friends with Armand DeSante because I recommend the film so much and uh, HBO should love me for it. But uh, I just love the movie. I probably watched it 10 times myself. But I would say that, the 1996 Gotti movie, Donnie Brasco, Goodfellas, all pretty accurate. And even Casino to a degree, Casino. But uh, those, are, those are the best. What's really funny is as soon as you mentioned Goodfellas, it became 
it occurred to me this entire conversation when I'm asking you these questions, I have Goodfellas scenes going on in my head. So like you know, when Joe Pesci's character gets walked into the empty room, like mm-hmm. I was explaining to my wife last night, like, no, babe, that, that that's a thing. That's the thing that happened. Like they walked you into a room, you know, you thought there were going to be people in there. You see the rooms empty and you've got about a second before you realize like, okay, it's over for me. But Michael, I really, really appreciate the time today. I really appreciate you letting us go into all these different areas, but that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? I, I just want to mention two things, Kyle. I recently started a platform called Mob Ties mm-hmm. and it's actually mobtiesmovement.com. And what it is for, for all our men today that want to be part of, a, of an organization, part of a brotherhood where they can not only uh, understand how to be real men in 2023, but also how to you know, be successful in business. Where it, It's a, a platform where we're offering everything, not only from myself, but some real experts that we put out there. And, and something else that's very, very exciting is I may be coming together on a, a platform with Mike Tyson. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, Mike is, is very interested in leaving his legacy and helping men prosper. He's, gone, he's undergone a tremendous transformation in his life. Very honest, very sincere, very intelligent. And he and I are, are clicking on a lot of things, and we're putting this platform together. It looks like it's coming together. So anybody that's interested, uh, you know, mobtiesmovement.com. Just keep your eye open. I'll be talking about it on YouTube. And we just want to make men men. You know, there's a, there's a, a movement to e- emasculate men lately. And, you know, I know people like Andrew Tate and Jordan Peterson are out there, and they're trying to do their thing. Andrew's got some issues right now, but, you know, I want to make one thing clear to if there's any ladies watching this, teaching a man or guiding a man in how to be a real man is only a benefit to a woman. It doesn't take away anything from a woman. I happen to love my wife very much. She's the boss in our family. I'll be honest with you. I have five daughters and uh, they're all very independent, uh, you know, very secure in their ways. So, um, but we want to help men just really prosper in this day and age. And uh, so take a look at it. I'm sure you'll, you'll be interested in it and we'll take it from there. Well, you basically guaranteed that we're going to have you back on to talk about some more stuff because you opened up a can of worms there at the very end. But I know you got to go on to the next thing. But guys, the Mob Ties movement, uh, that link will be in the show notes. But Michael Franzese, thank you for coming on a Daunted Life of Man's podcast. Kyle, I appreciate it. Yes, let's do it again. Thank you very much. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my time with Michael Franzese. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So here are the links I've got for you today. I've got a link to Michael's website. I've got a link to that thing he was talking about there at the end, Mob Ties, the Mob Ties movement, so you guys can check that out. But I've also got links to his YouTube channel and where you can go and buy a couple of his books. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Cutting the Tides, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. Judah.